Let us pray. Our great God, our Father in heaven, the merciful and gracious One, the One who sent Your eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our Savior from sin and from death, we gather today to give You thanks and praise. For You gather us together as Your people. You gather us to renew Your covenant with us. You pile up benefits and blessings upon us. You mark us out as Your own treasured possession. And You promise us a glorious future. Even now, You assure us of Your love and Your forgiveness. All honor and praise are due to You with Your Son and with the Holy Spirit. You are the Creator and all that You have made reminds us of Your goodness and Your power. The sun reminds us that Your Son Jesus is the light of the world. And the moon reminds us that we are to reflect His light into the world. The rain reminds us that You cleanse us in the waters of baptism. The thunder reminds us of Your powerful voice that shakes the earth. The clouds remind us of Your heavenly throne chariot. And the wind reminds us of Your Spirit who blows where He will. We know all of history is but the unfolding of Your book of decrees. For You have authored the story of the universe in every detail. You have authored the story of each of our lives. We know our chapter in Your cosmic story, the story of history, will be full of tragedy and triumph as every other chapter in the story is. But we ask in the midst of it all, Father, that You would help us to be faithful, to trust You and to go on trusting You alone. When we see evil in the world around us, we ask that You would help us to remember Your sovereignty. We ask that You would help us to forgive our enemies and to pray for those who persecute Your church. Today, as Your people gather around the world, some come with great joy, some come in great grief. But may we all give You thanks. May we give You thanks in all circumstances. May we know Your peace. May we receive Your promise of forgiveness in faith. May we know the comfort of Your presence. Be with us here, we ask. Draw near to us as we seek to draw near to You, O Lord. This is our prayer. In the name of Christ Jesus and in the power of Your Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray together. Father, today may we see Your Son, Jesus. That is our desire, to see Jesus. Jesus in the text of Scripture. Jesus in history. Jesus in the world around us. Jesus in our own hearts. May You show us Jesus. May You show us Jesus, for He is the true Israel. And indeed, He is Israel's true God. He is the One who fulfills Israel's mission and in whom Your covenant faithfulness is revealed. So Father, show us Jesus today that our hearts may trust in Him and delight in Him and receive Him as our King. We pray this in His name. Amen. This passage in Mark 11 is known as the triumphal entry. Uh, It takes place on what is known as Palm Sunday, which marks the beginning of what is known in the church calendar as Holy Week. Now, what's going on here? Jesus has been on the way 
And he finally arrives at his destination, the city of Jerusalem and the temple, and of course, ultimately, Golgotha, where he will be crucified. His disciples and the crowds don't really understand that last bit about the cross just yet, but certainly there's no question what it means for Jesus to have arrived at the city of Jerusalem and at the temple. Indeed, there was messianic fervor as Jesus entered the city. Jesus had done enough to raise the hopes of the people to raise the hopes of the people to believe that perhaps the promised king was here. His miracles and his teaching had stoked the flames of that hope. His teaching and his miracles had made the people hopeful that their promised redemption had arrived. But what we're going to see in this passage today and as we work through the rest of this part of Mark's Gospel is that those hopes which have been raised so high, those hopes must be dashed before they can be fulfilled. The crowd has the right God, but the wrong idea. The crowd will use the right words, but fill them with the wrong content. The crowd is right. Jesus is the Messiah. They're right. He is bringing in the kingdom, but they're wrong in what they think all of that means. They were right to have great expectations, but they were wrong in the shape and nature of those expectations. The crowd goes crazy on Palm Sunday. There's all kinds of pomp and pageantry as they welcome in the one who they hail as king. But by the end of the week, the crowd will be yelling for Jesus to be crucified and they'll be mocking His claims to kingship. The whole week is a story of hope rising, hope falling, and hope being Reborn. This is what we'll see as we move through these chapters of Mark's Gospel. You know, the city of Jerusalem was accustomed to grand processions. In 63 B.C., when the Romans conquered the city, they processed in triumphantly through the gates of the city of Jerusalem. Earlier than that, when Judas Maccabees, around the year 160 B.C., uh, when Judas Maccabees had recaptured the city of Jerusalem for the Jews and rededicated the temple uh, again, this is around 160 B.C. He processed into the city. And as he processed into the city, the people waved palm branches and hailed him as their deliverer. The Herodians who were sitting on the throne when Jesus entered the city, the, the city of Jerusalem is under the rule of the Herodian dynasty at this point. The Herodians loved ostentatious entrances into the city and regularly had big festive processions into the city. But of course, all of these processions were just parodies of the real procession Jesus makes here. It is interesting to consider the fact that in many years prior to Jesus' ministry, uh, there were many who had claimed to be the Messiah, who had claimed to be the promised King, who had said they would bring in the kingdom and deliver Israel from her pagan oppressors. And they all did the same thing. They all marched into the city, through the gates of the city. They made grand claims about the kingdom. But every single time, their claims were proven false. Those messiahs, would-be messiahs, were always defeated. As we move through this part of Mark's Gospel, we're going to see what makes Jesus different. And while Jesus might look defeated momentarily, He actually emerges triumphant. While the hopes the people had put in Him seem to be dashed, those hopes are going to be reborn and fulfilled in a much greater way than they ever could have imagined. 
It's interesting, too, that up to this point in Mark's Gospel, Jesus has tried to stay more or less out of the spotlight. The so-called messianic secret has been a prominent theme in Mark up until this point. Anytime somebody recognizes Jesus for who He is, even partially, He tells that person to keep it quiet, to stay silent. So earlier in Mark's Gospel, He cleansed a leper. And then He warns the man, see that you say nothing to anyone. He raised a little girl from the dead, but He tells her parents, no one should know about this. Uh, He heals a deaf mute, but then he orders him, even though he's just gotten his voice back, he orders the man not to tell anyone. And on and on it goes. Even when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus says, tell no one. At the transfiguration, when three of his disciples see him glowing with this glorious, brilliant light, he says afterwards, they're not to share with anyone what they've seen. Jesus has been keeping His identity under wraps, but not anymore. Now He comes out of hiding. The veil is torn. The wrapping is torn away, so to speak, so Jesus can be revealed. Instead of hiding away, He now gets public and confrontational. And so He stages this grand entrance into the city. You could really almost consider this a form of street theater with the pomp and the pageantry. His entrance into the city is clearly a symbolic, prophetic action. He's been walking everywhere he goes. Now he's going to ride into the city. He's been keeping quiet and staying in the shadows throughout Mark's Gospel up to this point. Now he steps out into the spotlight. He changes tactics as he rides into the city and makes a public spectacle. And there's got to be a reason for that. There's got to be a reason for this shift in tactic and in strategy. He goes from telling people to keep his identity quiet to saying, as he actually we find out in Luke's Gospel, that if the people don't cry out who he is, then the stones will do it. If the people won't praise him, then the stones, the very rocks, will praise him. We see Jesus going from being in the shadows, lurking in the shadows, as it were, to being deliberately provocative. In fact, we're going to see as these chapters unfold, when he comes to Jerusalem, he throws down the gauntlet. Why this change? Well, it can only mean one thing. It means the time has come. With this event of the triumphal entry, the final act of Mark's Gospel begins. This is the climactic moment. This is what we've all been waiting for. And so everything that Mark tells us about Jesus here, everything that Jesus does is supercharged with meaning. Every detail is filled with incredible meaning and significance, adding to the overall picture that we get of what's happening here. Mark doesn't just tell a story. He tells a story that shows how Jesus is fulfilling God's plan for His creation. How Jesus is fulfilling God's plan of salvation. If you look at me, look at some of these details with me. Uh, some of the things that happen here. Verse 1, we find Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem. That may sound like a kind of just throwaway phrase, just a way of describing how He comes to the city. He's drawing near to Jerusalem and to the temple. But you know, throughout the Bible, that language of drawing near is used specifically for worship. In the Old Covenant, under the law, when somebody would bring a sacrificial offering... 
he was said to draw near. He would draw near to the temple to make his offering. And the animal offering itself was called a near bringing. He brings the animal near. So, for example, if you read Leviticus chapter 1, verse 2, literally translated, you know, Leviticus is all about the animal offerings. This is how Leviticus 1, verse 2 reads. The Lord says, when you draw near with a near bringing, that is the sacrificial animal, you shall draw near with the near bringing. <laughs> Sounds kind of redundant, but it's, it's emphasizing this point. When you draw near to God, you bring with you your near bringing, the animal that's going to get even closer to God than you can. The animal that's going to be put on the altar. So drawing near is the language of sacrificial worship, the language of sacrificial offerings. If Jesus is drawing near to the city, and indeed to the temple in the heart of the city, the place where offerings are made, what is He coming to do? Why does Mark say He's drawing near? it must mean He's coming to offer sacrifice. Actually, as we'll find, He's coming to be the sacrifice. Jesus is the ultimate near bringing. And not so incidentally, uh, this day, the Sunday before Passover began, this would also have been the day when the Passover lambs were brought into the city to be inspected by the priests. So the priests would look at the Passover lambs to see if they were without spot and without blemish, so they could be sacrificed on the following Friday. And so when Jesus draws near to the temple, when He passes through the city gate, He's coming in as the Passover lamb. All the other lambs are being brought into the city to be sacrificed on that Friday. Jesus comes into the city as the Passover lamb who will be slain for the sins of His people. When He comes into the city on this day and in this way, it's as if He is saying to the people, pick Me to be your Passover lamb. Pick Me to be your sacrifice without spot or blemish. Now, one thing Jesus is going to do when He gets into the city of Jerusalem, one thing that was not necessarily expected by the people, is He is going to pass judgment on the temple. Back in chapter 1, Mark opened his gospel with a quotation from Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 3, the prophet says, the Lord says through the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. That prophecy from Malachi 3, quoted in the opening verses of Mark's gospel, really sets the trajectory and the pathway for this gospel. It kind of tells you what the narrative arc is going to be, how this story is going to work. It's about the Lord coming, and there's one who must prepare His way. Well, who prepares His way? The messenger who prepares the way is clearly John the Baptist. Where does the way He prepares lead? Well, Mark doesn't quote the rest of Malachi 3 there, but if you go back and look at it, as you should, since Mark is citing it, you go back and you keep reading, where is it going to lead? The very next verse, the very next line in Malachi 3 says, the Lord will come suddenly to His temple. Where is Jesus going? He's going to the temple. What will happen when He gets there? Again, go back to Malachi 3 and keep reading. Who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? See, when Jesus, the Lord incarnate, comes into Jerusalem, it is the Lord arriving at the temple in fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. And what's going to happen when He gets there? No one is going to be able to stand in His presence. We didn't read it in Mark 11, but you keep going in Mark 11, the very next story is of Jesus cleansing the temple. They cannot stand in His presence when He arrives, just as Malachi said. 
In fact, in chapters 11, 12, and 13 of Mark's Gospel, Jesus confronts the temple. He confronts the corruption of the temple. He says the temple is going to be destroyed. But see, that raises a question. If when the Lord comes to the temple, no one can stand in His presence, and He announces that the temple is going to be destroyed, the natural question any Jew would have had would be, well, okay, is there going to be a new temple set up in its place? Is there going to be an alternative? to this doomed temple. If that temple is going to be destroyed, is God going to build a new temple in its place? And I think again here, Mark gives us some details that suggest yes, but he shows us that this temple is not going to be tied to the city of Jerusalem the way the old temple was. As Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, Mark tells us he goes through Bethphage, Bethany, and the Mount of Olives. Now, the reality is, as the pilgrims made their way to the city of Jerusalem, they passed through a number of different villages and and, and places of note. Mark could have picked out any number of villages or landmarks that Jesus passed through and said Jesus went here and then there. And and, and so he he could have set up this travel itinerary in any number of different ways. Why does Mark pick out these three to tell us about? Bethphage, Bethany, and the Mount of Olives. What do all three of these have in common? Well, it's very interesting. Bethany means house of dates. Or it could also mean house of palms. It suggests a palm tree. Bethphage means house of figs. Figs play a prominent place in the Bible. Fig leaves play a very prominent role in the Bible. Indeed, in this story, uh, figs are important. And the Mount of Olives obviously has a grove of olive trees on it. So what do you have? You have the house of dates or palms. You've got the house of figs, and you've got the Mount of Olives where there are olive trees. Plants, figs, and olives. What do they all have in common? They all belong in a garden-like environment. Uh, In fact, if you go back and you read about the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, you find these environments for worship that God set up for His people had all kinds of plants and plant imagery in them. Dates and figs and palm branches were not out of place. They fit right into the the, the temple, tabernacle, sanctuary environment. And of course, that's because the tabernacle and the temple were supposed to be pictures of a restored Garden of Eden. So if you were able to walk into the temple, of course, hardly anybody could, just the priests. But if you were to go into the temple, it would have had a garden-like appearance, a garden-like feel with all the artwork reminding you of the Garden of Eden. Well, here Jesus passes through places that are described in garden-like terms. Now, of course, the city of Jerusalem itself was supposed to be a, a kind of garden city, a citified garden, but we're going to see it's failed in that purpose. God planted the first garden, Eden, And then he told man to guard that garden and cultivate it. Of course, later on, this becomes the job of the priest. The temple or the tabernacle is the new Eden, and they're told to guard and keep the temple. The same language that was used for Adam in the Garden of Eden is used for the priests and the temple. In Isaiah 5, the prophet says that God has planted Israel as his own garden, as a vineyard. In fact, Jesus is going to tell stories about vineyards when he's in the city of Jerusalem. 
But Isaiah 5 goes on to say that as the Lord has planted Israel as His garden, He comes to His people expecting fruit. God is hungry for fruit. And in a way, you could say when Jesus comes into the city, that's what He's doing. He has come to inspect the Lord's garden, His own garden. He's looking for fruit. And the whole incident with the fig tree, I think, shows us that. Verse 12, He inspects... Sorry, this is verse 11. He inspects the temple. Verse 12 tells us the next day He was hungry. And then verse 13, He inspects a fig tree and finds it has no fruit on it. And so that fig tree is cursed. Now all of this, this, this ought to call to mind a number of things from other places in the Scripture. Remember when the Lord came to meet with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? He came to inspect Adam and Eve. And what did He find? He found them wearing fig leaves. He didn't find any figs, no fig fruit. He just found them wearing fig leaves. And so what did He do? He cursed them. There was no fruit, at least no good fruit. Just fig leaves. Those fig leaves couldn't cover their shame and their guilt, this fruitless, these fruitless fig leaves. When Jesus curses the fig tree here, that's obviously symbolic of Israel. Israel was to be a race of new Adams, a new Adamic humanity living in a new Eden. They were to bear fruit. When Jesus goes to inspect the city, when He goes to inspect the fig tree, He doesn't find any fruit. And so He curses the fig tree. It's a sign of Him cursing Israel for her faithlessness and her fruitlessness. And indeed, later when Jesus pronounces judgment on the temple, it's the same thing. The temple is cursed because the temple is fruitless. But I think the fact that Jesus passes through the house of figs and the house of dates and goes to the Mount of Olives, a place where there are olives in abundance, olive trees, shows you Jesus is going to set up a new temple. He's going to build a new temple. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But the fact is, Jesus visits all of these temple-like environments outside of Jerusalem. The new temple Jesus will build is not going to be connected to Jerusalem in the same way. It's going to be outside Jerusalem. And I think that's the impression you get by the fact that Jesus visits the house of figs and the house of palms and this olive grove outside the city. Now look at some other things going on here. Uh, There's a lot of detail about the colt that Jesus is going to ride on into the city. He sends two disciples into the city to fetch it for Him. And He gives very specific instructions. He says where the colt will be. He specifies that it's a colt that's never been ridden before. It's going to be tied up. It's going to be bound, so it's got to be loosed. He says, if anyone asks, why are you taking it? This is what you're to say. Say, the Lord has need of it. And why does Jesus give so much detail? Why does Mark include so much of this detail? Well, it's as if there is a script that has been pre-written. And Jesus is going to stick to that script. And He wants His disciples to stick to the script as well. He wants them to know all the events of this week are orchestrated. As Jesus enters the city, every little detail is prearranged and planned in advance. And so He wants His disciples to know everything that follows from the triumphal entry, everything that happens the rest of this week is carefully and divinely orchestrated as well. Everything from Palm Sunday onwards, He wants His disciples to understand, is unfolding according to plan. 
And so, when Jesus is finally crucified at the end of the week, He wants His disciples to know He's doing that on purpose. When Jesus is crucified, He wants them to know He did it on purpose. It wasn't some kind of accident where things spun out of control. The cross is not some kind of tragedy as if Jesus were just a helpless victim. No, Jesus shows His disciples right here that He's in charge. As He comes into the city on a colt, He wants them to see He really is King. He's in charge. It's all prearranged. It's all choreographed. Everything's part of the plan. When He dies, it's not going to be as a helpless victim. It's going to be as a King. Willingly, voluntarily, lovingly, sacrificing Himself for His people. There's nothing accidental about that. We're not riding on a colt. Uh, other Gospels tell us this is the colt of a donkey. Uh, I think this act of riding into the city links the triumphal entry with a number of other events in Scripture. Really kingly, royal events. Who was Israel's first king? Saul. When was Saul anointed? He was out looking for some missing animals when the prophet Samuel uh, encountered him and anointed him as king. Saul was out looking for donkeys. The the family donkeys had escaped, like your dog might escape, and he had to go out looking for them. He's looking for donkeys, and that's when Samuel encounters him and anoints him as king and says, you're going to rule over Israel. So there's this association between these lowly animals and the kingship right there. When Solomon is crowned king, he rides into town, he rides into the city of Jerusalem on David's donkey be crowned king. So donkeys or colts are associated with kings and kingly anointings and kingly processions. Of course, Mark doesn't cite it the way the other gospel writers do, but Zechariah 9 is also in the background here. Zechariah 9 prophesied that Israel's king would come to her in humility, in lowliness, riding on a colt. And indeed, if you look at that passage in its wider context in Zechariah, you see that this king has been advancing towards the city of Jerusalem. And on his way, he's conquered one city after another. He's on the warpath. He's accumulating victory after victory after victory. But then when he gets to Jerusalem, he doesn't ride in as the people might have expected on a war horse, a war steed. Instead, he comes, even though he's been victorious all along, he comes on a donkey who is victorious, but he comes in humility. And I think that, too, is a key to understanding this event. One other thing here that I think is also noteworthy. Jesus says they will have to untie the colt. The colt will be bound and will have to be loosed. Well, you know, Again, you might wonder... what. There's nothing unusual about a colt being tied up, and why even have to say that it would need to be loosed? Why go into that kind of detail? Well, again, this is an allusion to the prophetic scriptures. It's an allusion to Genesis 49. All the way back in Genesis 49, Jacob's last words to his 12 sons. He makes prophecies about his 12 sons. And when he gets to Judah, this is what he says. He identifies Judah as... The, the kingly son. Judah will be the royal tribe. Jacob said of Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Judah will be a young lion. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He will wash his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grace. 
Jesus fulfills all of that. He's a son of Judah, the true son of Judah. The scepter will not depart from his hand. He will rule as king. His brothers praise him. They're doing it right here as he enters into the city. By the end of the week, his garments will be stained red like with blood like wine. But note here too, it says Judah's colt will be bound speaks of the binding of Judah's donkey or Judah's uh, donkey's colt. Well, the untying of the colt here, when Jesus says the colt must be untied, He's alluding back to Genesis 49. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the one who will ride on Judah's colt. The colt that was bound but has been loosed. See, He's making it clear. The line of the tribe of Judah has arrived and he has come to ride into the city triumphantly and to take the throne as his own. And, and honestly, the people understand this. They seem to get it. When Jesus rides this untied colt into the city, the people do their cultural equivalent of rolling out the red carpet. They give Jesus the red carpet treatment. In fact, they lay down their clothes along the way, you could say, to kind of form a carpet. The clothes, of course, represent the people who were wearing them. And so putting their clothes underneath Jesus on the way is a way of putting themselves under Jesus' rule. They're saying, we will bear up your throne, Jesus. We will enthrone you on our praises. It's interesting, there's only one place where this happens in the Old Testament, and that's when the king Jehu enters into the city of Jerusalem. And he is proclaimed as the king. He's been anointed by one of the, the prophet's servants. And now he rides into the city and he's proclaimed as king. And the people throw their clothes down before him. And what does he go on to do? He goes to destroy a false temple and to destroy false worshipers, including Jezebel. It's all a foreshadowing of what Jesus is coming to do in the city. He is the greater Jehu. You can read about that in 2 Kings 8 and 9 and see how it just previews exactly what Jesus is going to do here. There were some who threw their cloaks down. There were others who cut down leafy branches from trees and spread them out on the road. So it's really like Jesus is not only coming in on, on His people, but He's also coming in on the treetops. It's as though He comes into the city riding on the clouds. We'll go back to the Old Testament. You find numerous passages where God rides about the heavens on a cloud that serves as His throne and chariot. Isaiah 19, the Lord comes in judgment on His cloud, riding upon the clouds of heavens. That's symbolized here. I think the people thought about this. They knew what they were doing. Jesus is coming as the Lord on the clouds. This is David's Son. He's the one with whom God will share His throne, His heavenly chariot. And the people cry out in words that come from Scripture. They cry out in the language of Psalm 118. They have this psalm no doubt memorized, and so they're singing it as Jesus enters the city. They say, Hosanna, which is a prayer. Save us, Lord. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Psalm 118 is a processional psalm. It was a psalm that would be sung by the people as they made their way into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Verse 19 says, Open to me the gates of righteousness and I will go through them. It's a psalm about coming into the gates of the city. 
It's also clearly a messianic psalm. Verse 22 says, The stone the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the stone who will be rejected by Israel's leaders. Israel's leaders don't come out to greet Him. By the end of the week, their rejection of Him will be clear when they have Him crucified. But in His resurrection, He will be established as the chief cornerstone in the new temple that the Lord is going to build. So He's the stone the builders rejected. That's His crucifixion. But God will set Him in place as the chief cornerstone. The risen Jesus will be the one upon whom the new temple is built. And then Psalm 118, the psalm of procession into the city, ends with the sacrifice being bound with cords to the altar. That's where the procession ends with sacrifice. Where's this whole procession headed? Where is Jesus going when He heads into the city? He's going to the altar of the cross. That psalm, Psalm 118, tells the story of Holy Week. It takes you from Palm Sunday through Easter. It's all there. If only the people had had eyes to see it. When Jesus enters the city, He goes not to the king's palace, not to Herod's palace, but He goes to the temple. And He inspects the temple. And obviously He finds it lacking because He's going to come back the next day and He's going to shut it down. He's going to shut down temple worship temporarily. And that raises the question, does Jesus come as a temple reformer or a temple destroyer? What is His purpose? Does He want to fix what's wrong with the temple or is He going to wipe it out altogether? We're going to talk about that next week. Mark says He looked around as the hour was late and then He went back out of the city to Bethany with the twelve. Why does Mark tell us it was late? No doubt it was late in the day, but I think it also means it was late for the temple. Time is running out for the temple because one greater than the temple has arrived and the city's not going to be big enough for both of them. One is going to have to go. Now, this is the story of Jesus' triumphal entry. This is the story of Palm Sunday. This is the beginning of the climactic moment in Mark's Gospel. Let me take this text and show you some ways that I think it applies to each of our lives. We might think, okay, this is great. I see what happened here. But what can an event so far away and so long ago do for us today? Why does all this matter even in its details? Well, here's some things to think about. Jesus comes into the city as a sacrifice. Are we willing to receive Him as our sacrifice, as the one who dies on the cross for our sins? Or will we be offended by the cross? What the cross says to each of us is, you are a sinner and your sins are so great, only the death of God in human form could undo your sin, could fix what's gone wrong. Only in the cross can you find forgiveness. You don't just need a little bit of help, a little bit of aid here and there. You need the death of the Son of God to cover what you've done wrong, to fix all that's wrong with you. Are we offended by that? Or do we rejoice in it? That's one thing clearly that's here. Here's something else. Jesus came into the city to inspect the temple. He came looking for fruit. Every Sunday, in a sense, you could say is Palm Sunday. Jesus draws near to His temple. He enters into the temple of His church. And He comes to inspect us. He comes hungry, hungering for fruit. 
And so the question is, do we have good fruit to offer Him? When He inspects us, what is He going to see? What is He going to find? I think you have something like this going on in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters sent out to the seven churches. Jesus is inspecting His churches. And He's pointing out their flaws. And He's calling on them to repent in those areas where they need correction. Really, the Lord's Supper, you could say, is the same kind of thing. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace, but it's also a means of testing. It's a test of our loyalty, a test of our trust. You've heard me talk about before how 1 Corinthians 11 presents the Lord's Supper as a kind of jealousy inspection as the bride is put to the test. Have we been faithful? The Lord inspects our hearts when we come to His table. And so every Sunday when the Word is read and preached, let the Word do its work on you. Let the Word correct you. Let it cut you and let it heal you. Let it tear you down and build you back up. Let it kill you so it can resurrect you. Don't be discouraged by the Word when it speaks correction to you. That's for your good. Jesus comes looking for fruit. When His Word is preached, let Him prune you with the sword of the Word so you can become even more fruitful. When you come to His table, Receive Christ as your nourishment. Renew your trust in Christ alone as your King and Savior. Remember that the Lord's Supper is our Passover. It's a celebration of His sacrifice. A celebration of our freedom as the people of the new Exodus. Come with trusting hearts. But there's something else here. And I'll close with this. You know, we certainly don't want to be like the Jewish leaders who refused to even greet Jesus. Uh, they just came out to criticize Jesus, and they're going to be judged for the way they snubbed Jesus and rejected Him. So we don't want to be like the, the leaders, the Pharisees and the priests in Jerusalem, but we also don't want to be like the crowds. Those who came out to greet Jesus, who knew He was a king, and who knew what words to use. Those who sang psalms and waved branches and threw their cloaks down. They knew Jesus was Messiah. They had everything. They, they knew it all. And yet they had it all wrong. Everything they knew was wrong. They had the right words, but the wrong content. They had the right man, but the wrong expectation. They were right to hope, but Jesus had to dash their hopes in order to fulfill their hopes in a greater way. You know, for them, that first crowd that gathered, Palm Sunday was largely a matter of politics. This was Passover week, a time when patriotism in Israel peaked. Uh, if ever Israel's king was going to come and deliver them from the Romans, surely it would be at Passover. They expected Israel's king to, to conquer all their enemies, to replace the Roman Empire with a golden age in which their nation would be on top. And all the other nations would serve them. They know we can do the same thing. We can do the same thing with our politics. Thinking surely Jesus is going to put our guy in the White House. We can think Jesus is going to do the same thing with our nation. Surely Jesus would never let America fall apart. Surely Jesus would never let America be overrun with terrorist attacks. Surely Jesus would never let us experience catastrophic economic collapse. But actually, we need to understand that is a misplaced faith just as much as the Israelites who greeted Jesus had misplaced their faith in the wrong kind of politics, 
we can misplace our faith in the wrong kind of politics as well. You know, there are no special promises made to the United States of America. Jesus never said the gates of hell will not stand against the U.S. of A. He doesn't say that. He says that about His church. This nation is an experiment. And as an experiment, it might eventually fail. The church is not an experiment. The church is a certainty. It is a certainty because it is Christ's new temple. It is Christ's body and Christ's blood. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We can have misguided political or national expectations expecting Jesus to underwrite our political hopes when He does no such thing. But you know, we can also do this on a personal level. We can think, surely Jesus wants me to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Surely Jesus would never let me get cancer. Surely Jesus doesn't want me or my family to suffer. Surely Jesus is going to make sure I get that raise and that promotion next year. Surely Jesus wants me to live out the American dream. Surely Jesus wants me to have a perfect spouse and perfect children and a bigger house, and a better vacation. Surely Jesus wants to keep me comfortable. You know, the reality is Jesus may or may not give you all those things. But know this, Jesus does not exist to glorify you. Jesus does not exist to give you just what you want. Like the crowds that greeted Jesus on Palm Sunday, we're always ready for the party. We want a, a Jesus who will serve our purposes, who will meet our needs, who will fill our, fulfill our desires. We're ready for the Palm Sunday party. We're not so eager for the Good Friday cross. The, the crowds that gathered to worship Jesus, they were celebrating. They were excited about Jesus. They were eager for the party. They were not so eager for the cross. Not so ready for the cross. And we can make the same mistake. Jesus may give you what you desire. Uh, sometimes He'll do that. But oftentimes, He won't. And so you must remember, He is the Lord. He is the King. And you are His subject. He's in charge. He calls the shots. He makes all the arrangements. And your job is not to sit back and question the way He runs His kingdom or to fill out your little complaint card. Your job is to serve Him and follow Him. Your job is to take up your cross and deny yourself. And you can know, yes, Jesus will make you happy in the end. In the end, you'll be happy, wealthy, healthy, all of that. You'll get all that in the end in the resurrection. But it's going to be a happiness that is the byproduct of holiness. And I dare say, Jesus is much more concerned with your holiness than with your happiness right at this moment. So cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. But make sure the content you pour into those words comes from Jesus Himself and not from your own imagination. Jesus is not in the wish-granting business. He is not a genie we can summon from a bottle. Jesus did not come to fulfill the wishes, desires, dreams, and hopes of the people who greeted Him. Had He come to fulfill those wishes, He would not have been crucified five days later. You don't crucify wish fulfillers. You don't crucify nice guys. Had He fit with their political vision or their vision of the kingdom or their vision of what God should do for them, they would not have crucified Him. 
But when he didn't fulfill their expectations, instead of changing their expectations and altering their categories, they killed him. He had to be eliminated. They had to remove him. It was too offensive. You know, someone has said that the challenge of Jesus to the crowds on Palm Sunday is this. Will you be my disciple or will you be my executioner? Will, where are you going to line up? Those are the only two camps to be in. You're either a disciple or a crucifier. You either want to follow Him or you want to kill Him. Those are the only two places to be. And I think that's true. But there's another way to put it that I think gets at more subtle ways we can try to twist and distort who Jesus is. So maybe the way to put the question is this way. Will you receive Jesus as He truly is? As He truly offers Himself to us in the Scriptures? Or will you twist Jesus and remake Jesus and reinvent Jesus so He becomes your personal little godlet to do what you want? Your divine Santa Claus. Your national mascot who underwrites your hopes and exists to fulfill your dreams and is there to prop up your aspirations. Is Jesus your king or is he your co-pilot? Do you want Jesus as a personal assistant or do you want him as your Lord? Beware of the fantasy Jesus. Beware of reinventing Jesus. Beware of assuming that Jesus wants for you what you want for you. You are not to conform Jesus to your own image. You are to be conformed to his image. Jesus is King of kings. He's Lord of lords. He is God of gods. Savior of saviors. Messiah of messiahs. Judge of judges. We either receive Him as He is, as He truly is, or we don't really receive Him at all. And so I urge you today, receive Jesus. Trust Jesus. Serve Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for sending Jesus to be our Savior, to be our Lord. May we trust Him. May we follow Him. May we serve Him. May we resist all temptations to, to, to reshape Jesus, to mold Him into what we want Him to be. May we recognize Him for who He truly is and serve Him accordingly. We pray this in His name. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let us stand and pray. O God, our refuge and strength, You are the author of all godliness. We return praise to You, for You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our God. Merciful Father, victorious Son, and Holy Spirit, hear now the devout prayers of Your church. We pray to you today, Heavenly Father, to sanctify our homes with your light and joy. Keep your children in the covenant of their baptism and enable parents to rear them up in a life of faith and godliness. Give health and strength to our expecting mothers and their babies, Jennifer Venable, Mary Jo Mosley, Claire Maddox, Hannah Bourgeois, and Christy Wells. And thank you for the safe delivery of Patrick and Lauren Russo's son, John Patrick's brother, William Major Russo. Help us, all your people, mature into your likeness and in all our callings to contemplate the mysteries of your wisdom with increasing devotion. 
Yes, and unite all Christians by the spirit of affection and service, that we may show forth thy praise in our land and in all the world. We pray for our friends and brethren who are sick. Great physician, drive away pain and sickness from and give health to Miles Harrison, Lindsay Scogan, Forrest Holes, Kia Shoku, Ashton Motes, Sarah Claudia and her mother, Michelle Stevenson, Bethany Laughlin, Ashley Hamblin, Jared and Liz and their unborn child with a fatal disorder, also the Jennings, whose baby has disorders, Finley Evans, friends struggling with MS, for Mark Horn and his recovery from the stroke, and Lord, also for many others. Help, encourage, protect, and be near all who are battling cancer. For Tammy, Tim Hamblin's sister, Kendall Touchton's father, Theresa Poor, Devin Tarter, Joy Ann Perry, Sylvia Douglas, Brenda Jordan, Gregory Morris, Martha Goodwin, Patsy Sadler, and others. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and ministering to us through all sorts of means to uphold us in times of grief, crisis, and pain. You are our comforter and our strength. Strengthen and comfort all who are grieving the loss of a loved one. For Brian Motes' brother-in-law's family, the Hanby family, Vicki Walker's family, the Shelton family, and the Scotulas. We also intercede for our world, Lord, by praying to you, the creator, ruler, and sustainer of the world. Give to all men the mind of Christ and dispose our days in your peace. To all who oppose you, O God, expose their folly and remove from your creation their shameful transgressions. Rescue people from pursuing the traps of wickedness by showing them your wisdom, Jesus Christ. Save the oppressed. Vindicate your persecuted children and rescue the world from your hateful and stupid enemies, O God, for you are the one true God who delivers even from death. Bestow your word and wisdom that all might serve you, that all might delight under the rule of your truth and righteousness. We intercede in prayer on behalf of the local churches, schools, and community leaders that all would do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before you. Send out the Holy Spirit to renew and save Cahaba Heights, the Birmingham area, our nation, and indeed the whole world. You know our needs, and we persist in prayers to you because you care for us, you hear and answer us, and you build us up to be your royal priesthood. O oh God, have mercy. And now, Heavenly Father, hear us as we pray the prayer your Son taught us to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory. 